Good afternoon. Um, this year is a little bit of an outlier for, for me, and you'll see why. Uh, it's a little bit outlier with me, a little different set of sources than what is usual for me or for the May and I hope I hope it'll be interesting. Uh, the top is actually, on the first thing, that's actually uh, an old Egyptian script from a, tr- from a pyramid, from one of the burial places of the king. We see the king, o- excuse me, I'm pointing. We see the king over here, that's the parrot, and the sort of the messenger of death with his boat, transferring the king to the other side of the river Styx, which was the boundary between the world, this world and the world to come. A lot of our discussion will be based on Herodotus, the Greek historian. We know exactly when he was born. The, the scope of years uh, between this and the Exodus are different suggestions of the, diff- of the possible dates of the Exodus. We're talking about 800,000 years, approximately the distance between us and, let's say, say Rashi. Um, Cicero Cranman, the first historian, and he detailed the process of embalming, which I'll show you why it's significant. This is a picture of him, a bust of him. People in New York, it's in the Met. This is contemporary. It was found where Herodotus lived, so it probably was a living bust of him. Anyhow, to our share. For Yitzav Yosefet of Adav, Yosef commanded his servants, Eterofim, and after 40 days, that is the days of all the people that are in Bam, and all of Egypt uh, cried for him or eulogized him for 70 days. The embalming was 40 days, and the mourning of Egyptians was 70 days. In the Herodotus, after which the body sort of skipped the first part since we're before lunch. We'll see in a second why. After which the body is placed in natrium, so it's a salty material, covered entirely for, for over four, 70 days. Never longer. Maybe shorter. Maybe the 40 days, we know 40, 40 in general is a, Sort of is a number symbolic of preparation. Moshe fasts for 40 days. Ben Israel stays in the Midbar for 40 years as a preparation to entrance. So it's perhaps 40 days is just somehow less than 70, most of 70. He says never longer, maybe shorter. What is the purpose of this embalming? In Egyptian religion, Ka could return to the deceased body only if it was well-preserved from, from decay. The Egyptians were interested and thought it was vital to preserve, to preserve the flesh of the king in order for him to cross the river Styx successfully. I haven't sort of nailed this down right. Apparently, the Arberbanel had a pretty accurate description of the embalming. Perhaps he had Herodotus. Uh, I couldn't quite nail that down, but let's read it inside. This is the uh, post-lunch version. It's emptying the brain and the innards of the body. I'm not quite sure what that is. And the body is then coated 
inside and outside, B'Shem and Nefar Simon, slightly different than what not Salt and Herodotus. And it's then covered with, this is a natron and other uh, uh, fragrance uh, perfumes to dry out the body. And then the body is dried out and is hard and dry. Without any change of any of the limbs. And it looks as if the the dead, the corpse is just sleeping. And it won't rot. And it won't smell. One has to understand that the burial and bombing in Egypt, this was not a game. This was serious. Huge resources. And I'm not talking about personal fortunes. I'm, I'm talking about national fortunes. Monuments. Something akin to the Statue of Liberty, or in our modern age, sending people to the moon. This was the pyramids. This was the tombs. This was a serious business. This was, in fact, in the early kingdom, in the in the little script that we saw, we saw a servant in the boat. Well, apparently that, that was a later stage. In the earlier stages, they actually had human sacrifices. Of The historians assume it was the servants because we don't expect the king to actually carry his bags on the boat, and therefore he really needs someone to carry them, and who better than the servants that served him all his life. So there was human sacrifice there. At the end, they realized it was too much, and then we have pictography, and we have pictures of servants as the, the little, uh, little uh, swatch that we showed before on the sides of the wall, and papyri that we have found that depict uh, the servants in the in the in the tombs. Also, there are specific and very very detailed rules of burial, some of which we'll touch on in the end. Conclusion: This is a central part of Egyptian religion and belief in the afterlife. Something taken very seriously and and terribly invested in all kinds of resources. Let's read this uh, madrash that seems to deal with this. Lama make Yosef Why was why did Yosef die before his brothers? Rabbi Rabbi Rabbanan. There's an argument between between, between Rabbi Rabbi Yehuda Nasi and Rabbanan. Rabbi Amar, why Al Shechanat Aviv? Because he embalmed his father. This is not what I told you. I won't translate it because Altir is, is, I think there's a play in words in the Midrash. You don't have to worry about worms, Yaakov. Altir Tolat at Yaakov. Yaakov should not fear or see told out the worms of decay. Rabbanan Amri and Rabbanan say, who should tzivauto shechantuoto? Why should Yosef be punished? Yaakov, that was part of his commandment. Hechan hudut lichtev, vayasu banavlo. So Rabbi holds that the bombing of Jacob was wrong, was incorrect, and Yosef was in fact punished for it. Why? 
Apparently, the preservation of that flesh was unnecessary. What does the, what does the phrase "Al Tirit Talat Yaakov"? Does perhaps that mean maybe one could read it that really the flesh of Yaakov will be preserved without salts and stuff, purely by the intervention of God? Perhaps we could say no. Tirit the Pshuto is that you should not be fear him. That really doesn't matter. That in our, in, we do not need the body and the flesh of the deceased in order to get him to Olam Haba. We need, we're talking about Hachayat Nefashot in a different way, and we'll, in the end we'll see what, what I think about it. But what's interesting is that beside that, okay, so Rabbanan there apparently is no problem with desecration of the dead. We saw the somewhat graphic description of the Barbanel, the similar thing in Herodotus about emptying the body, and that is not cancelled. And on the sheet list there's some, uh, an article in Asya which dealt with the halachic aspects and different poskeb who related to to embalming, which obviously is somewhat opposed to Jewish traditional burial, but in fact Yaakov Avinu was and Yosef is actually buried that way. But what bothers me more about this issue, and that actually started me with this whole journey, isn't it bizarre or difficult to understand that of all the things, such a central belief, such a central part of Egyptian religion and culture was accepted by Yaakov and Yosef? How is that possible? We, we have the famous Midrash, Shiloshinu at Shmamet l'shonam, that Bnei Israel kept their religious identity and their ethnic identity of Jews. And here we have them accepting a really central religious precept of Egypt, connected to gods. We find gods all over the tombs. And even the notion of the afterlife is definitely a, a spiritual kind of a, a acceptance. Let's look on. Maybe we can find the answer somewhere else. Let's read the Psukim. Go and bury your father as he has uh, commanded you or made you swear. And then Yosef, in fact, goes to bury his father. But here it's very interesting. Who accompanies Yosef? All the slaves, servants of Paro, the wise men, and all the wise men, I guess Beto means the wise men of Yosef's court, and the wise men of Eretz Mitzrayim. Who, guess who also comes along? And then the Jews come also. The Egyptian influence on this burial of Jacob is, is evident. Paro permits the burial, but only because of the oath. It is not obvious that he will permit. This might be against the rules of Egypt. This might be an affront to Pharaoh. The Egyptian royal court accompanies the procession. And in fact, the Torah mentions the Egyptians first and with Yosef. Whereas the Jews are relegated almost to a secondary role. 
Let's go on a little bit. And horses and cavalry also accompany. There's a very large entourage of Egyptians with the military procession that accompanies. And by the way, this is also parallels the burial of pharaohs in the Valley of Kings. The burial was done west of the Nile Delta in the drier regions, which we'll get to that in a second. And they come to some place. And they do eulogize him for, hours, for, for a very long time. A difficult and tearful uh, eulogizing. And they, they have mourning for seven days. And the Canaanites see this and they're impressed. And how do they respond? Egypt is in mourning. Not Canaan, not Beit Yosef, not Beit Yisrael. It is an Egyptian difficult mourning. The real locals recognizes that this is an Egyptian mourning in feudal and a difficult one of an important personage and of an important Egyptian personage. So here we have adopting Egyptian funerary practice. We have an Egyptian entourage accompany Yaakov. And the natives recognize that and it's obvious and they call the place a place of Egyptian mourning. But then there's a bit of a change. Apparently the Egyptians wait outside Eretz Canaan. In Garnatad, do they wait? Do they go back? That's not. That's difficult to know. But now they they stop there. Perhaps there's a political problem with a military incursion into Canaan. But they let them go. So the carrying into Egypt, into Canaan, into Eretz Israel, and the burial is done without the Egyptian entourage. Places of so the the burial of Jake of Yaakov is similar to that of the Pharaohs of Paros, but a little different. The Valley of Kings lies west. And the Eretz Israel lies east, different, perhaps opposite, and opposite in a different way. The desert climate preserves the mummy, and it's amazing. We don't have that many mummies because they were they were broken into and stolen. But through all the centuries, there was a, a, actually a, a, a pretty brisk trade in these mummies. We found a few, and and it, they look more more or less like bodies. I mean. The flesh exists now after thousands of years. Someone's interested also in this, in these long Mishnah Melech about the trading of mummies. There's quite a few of them. Pretty long. <laughs> but, uh, and apparently that was a big thing until Mishnah Melech, 17th century Europe. 17th century Arabia. In Eretz Israel, the weather is humid. The land is humid compared to the valley of, uh, the valleys uh, of kings. Of course, that means that the body will decompose. Let's go about what happens with Yosef. Yosef et Israel 
God will remember you. And when he remembers you, you must, you must bring up my bones. Vayamat Yosef ben Meir v'ashashanim v'yechantu oto and Yosef is v'chnat is embalmed. But he is not buried. Vayesem ba'irob vayisem ba'aron b'mitzrayim and he's put in an aron. He's put in a coffin. In Mitzrayim, is he buried? Is he not buried? So we'll see in a second the Madrash a different day out. Here's the Mechelta. Rabbi Natan Omer Mibnema Hishbiat Achav, Velo Hishbiat Banav. His son should be more responsible to the father. Like Yaakov commanded Yosef, it's a natural thing to command the progeny. Why is he commanding his brothers? Amar imani mashbiat banai ein hamitzrim menichimotam. If I make my, if I swear my sons, the Egyptians won't let them bury. Vimomrim, and if my sons say avinu elat aviv, Yosef, we have a precedent. Yosef buried his father. Why can't you let us bury Yosef? Miad heimomrim lehem avichem melachaya. Now this isn't exactly clear. What is the special? And now, of course, Yosef is sort of in between. He's the son that buried Yaakov, and he's also going to be buried. I think it's the second. It's significant. Paro could have waived Yaakov's burial in the Valley of Kings. Yaakov doesn't have to be a monument of Egypt. Yosef does. Paron does not want Yosef, the savior of Egypt, to be Canaanite. He does not want someone born outside the United States to be a president of the United States. He does not want the savior of Egypt, and here it's called the king, maybe, I guess, a king, and the Mishnele Melech, to be, he has to be part of the pantheon. He does not want to rely on the technocratic abilities of someone that's identified as a Canaanite. And therefore he has to be buried in the Valley of Kings as to avoid an affront to Egyptian capabilities. Here I'm not sure. Here it says, and therefore he made his he swore his brothers and not his sons. Why are his brothers better than his sons? Why would he allow the brothers as opposed to the sons? That's not totally clear. Maybe because his sons were more Egyptian. Right, so the woman he says, and that's what I think also, that it's because the sons are quote-unquote more assimilated and more less dedicated to the Masara. So here what is clear, the Jews in Egypt, there are limitations on their practice. It's not obvious they can go up in, to Canaan, Eretz Yisrael, and bury their dead. They require the assent of Paro. We saw that from the Pasuk, that even Yosef had to ask permission. And we see this from the Midrash here, that it wasn't obvious that, that Yosef uh, would be uh, that permission on the burial of Yosef would be granted. So maybe there's 
especially this kind of fear of the connection, Canaan, probably arrival of Egypt as a province at certain times, but uh, the connection to Canaan was was a problematic. And the recognition, as the woman stated, and I totally agree, that the sons will probably be more, quote-unquote, Egyptian than the brothers. So here we have this question, how do Egyptians view Yosef? Is he a Egyptian convert, naturally citizen, a naturalized citizen committed to the success of Egypt? Can he play in the Olympics for Egypt? Or is he like an independent player, kind of a technocrat, not, but at least not committed to the Canaan family who betrayed him? Or maybe he's a candidate transplant in control of the country. And I imagine there were different people in the Egyptian court who viewed Yosef differently. Anyone who is familiar with intrigues of different royal families in Europe are interested in all these intrigues and people transplanted from different countries and suspecting of dual loyalties. People from Jews and American Jews also have that feeling from parlor to all sorts of different people. There's always that fear and royal courts always have their intrigue. I think what will, yes, he came to Egypt as a slave. That's my wife. (laughs) And she, I I, I want to thank in the beginning, but she helped me on this PowerPoint and she listened to me for the last three months talking about this on Shabbat table incessantly. So um, so they do know. He's a slave. They know that Yosef was not, was not born in Egypt. They know he was a slave. The story in Potiphar was clear. I'll point out a little bit at the end how his actions perhaps try to emphasize the first part and not the second part. How do, oh, this is with the next slide. There's a famous Ramban. That is obvious. It couldn't be that Yosef was going to kill his brothers. It couldn't be that he was willing to torture his brothers. And Yosef, Ramban develops this opinion and why did Yosef not bring his brothers earlier? And it couldn't be that he wanted to torture them. Well, the Ramban was very, very apt and very smart and very sensitive to human nature, but I think there was someone that knew Yosef better, and that was Yehuda. And Yehuda is convinced that after Yaakov dies, Yosef will kill him. He begs him, and he tells him that Yaakov promised Yosef that they would be safe, that they shouldn't kill him. We have no record of that. Is Yehuda lying? Maybe. It's not clear. Yehuda, though, is quaking in his boots that Yosef will kill him. He's probably, his, his, his vision, his depiction of Yosef is probably more accurate. Apparently, the way Yosef treated them justified that fear. And perhaps it wasn't only done for revenge and hatred, but perhaps there was a positive reason that Yosef felt that he had to do that, to keep them distant to keep them in Eretz Goshen, that they wouldn't be a threat, that so Yosef wouldn't be a Canaanite, tra- seen as a Canaanite transplant in the court of Joseph, 
in the court of Paro, holding the budgetary strings, forcing the Egyptians to yield their liberty to Paro every few years when they ran out of food. I somehow think that that probably engendered some kind of resentment. So, being being faithful to Paro was probably important. Being seen as an Egyptian, as a nationally as Egyptian citizen, was probably important, as we see in this saga of the burial, in the Medrash and the and the begging of Pharao for and the begging of Pharao for the permission to go. Here we have Tosefta, and it's sort of quoted in Bavli, part of it. Um, it's on the source sheet if you want to look. This uh, I couldn't go into all the details, but uh, but it's very interesting in the details I left out are really interesting also. So here the question is Yosef Zachabat Motaviv, Yosef was worthy of burying Yaakov. And therefore Moshe, the greatest people, he, Yosef, was Zohar, that Moshe would deal with his burial. How did he know where Yosef was buried? Here it says he was buried, even though that is pointedly left out in the Mikra. Sarah Batasher, an old woman, a connection to the past, the only one alive from from the original that saw the original Shvatim. And she went and said to him, Moshe, Benilus Nahar Yosef Kavur. He's in the Nile. Sha'asula Mitzrim. They put in spikes of steel, the Hebron babouts, and they attached them with lead. I don't quite know how they had sub, whatever. I don't know how they welded it under the water. It's pretty new technology. But he's, it's described as they stuck his around in the bottom of the river with spikes of steel, grounded, with weldings of lead. Valach Moshe Vamar al Nilasanahar and Moshe stood on the river banks of the Nile. Vamar Yosef. He said, Joseph, Higiashash Akadish Baruch go out Israel. We are leaving now. The Shin is waiting for you. The Israelmach Vin Lacha. And the Jews are waiting for you. And we are all waiting. We have to go for the trip. We're waiting in the car. Everything is waiting. Come. If you reveal yourself now, that's full and well. And if not, we are clear. This story is told, and we're going to tell it with slightly different versions. This is the mo- perhaps the most famous one, quoted by Rashi. But there are other versions, both in the Michilta and other Medrashim we'll see. What are the main elements of the Tosafta? Sarach, from the past, only one alive to see the Shvatim, informs Moshe. Yosef is buried in the Nile. That's not where kings are buried. Kings are buried in the desert. 
But he is sunk and attached and welded to the bottom of the Nile to prevent its removal. Is it to prevent or delay the the exodus of the Jewish people? Basically, the Egyptians don't treat Yosef as a king in this. They, They treat him as someone who's suspect, whose peoples are suspect to their patriotic and their allegiance to Egypt. And therefore, he is, the body is used as a way to bind the Jewish people to the land of Egypt. He is, Yosef physically is bound to the Nile, a symbol of Egypt's grandeur. But because of the Shuwa and the intertwining of Yosef's and the bones of Yosef, the mummy of Yosef's, the mummy of Yosef, mummy of Yosef basically, he has, they have binded the Jews to Egypt. Here's another medrash, which is different than a little bit of an element, different than, uh, has slightly different elements. Rechansha, which starts from a totally different point, but we see a certain position on where Yosef was temporarily buried in Egypt. The scent of tzaddikim, me'ir me'sofa olam The scent of tzaddikim is smelt from one side of the world to the other. And therefore, the smell of tzaddikim can be smelled during their lives. And even when they're dead, Moshe takes the bones of Yosef with him. That's odd. How did he recognize who was Joseph? Does can someone tell the difference between the bones of his father and the bones of his mother? Between the bones of a Jew and the bones of a guy? So this I want to pull this out. This Midrash apparently holds that what? That Yosef was buried as a king. Even though it is not mentioned that he is buried. He says, Vayisim ba'aron. Not Vayikbar et Yosef. But here the Medrash assumes that Yosef being a king perhaps seemed like the first option we mentioned as a loyal naturalized citizen and someone who saved Egypt. And if he saved Egypt, well, he must be Egyptian. And if he saved Egypt as an Egyptian, he deserves to be buried in the Valley of Kings. But how could he tell which one was Yosef? Moshe comes, he sees this long line of, of, of pharaohs. Who is Yosef? Yosef. He smelled. He walked into it and he smelled each mummy. The smell of Joseph's mummy smells different than the pharaoh's mummy. It smells like what? The Aron Habrit. By the way, the Palteran Shalmet Mulachim, that's also Yesh Omrim in the Michilta about where he was buried. This part of Reich doesn't appear, so I picked this. The whole Michilta is, is quoted on your sword sheets. Interesting to, the root, to read. Let's get back to our friend Herodotus. After removing the organs, the body is filled with bruised myrrh, cassia, and every other aromatic substance. We saw the similar description in a barbinel about the, the psamim. 
The smell of Joseph is different. All the other parents smell from myrrh, cassia, and other on their other aromatic substances placed in their bellies. What does what is the scent emanating from Yosef's gut? Aron Habrit. So here we have a few differences between the Medrashim. Where the place of burial was, a Nile, which to my mind symbolizes the seeing of Yosef as a transplant, a possible traitor, someone that has to be suspected, someone whose people has to be suspected, as happened later when they were in, when the Jews were enslaved. The, the identification of Yosef in the Nile, he's just rising from the Nile, from a tzivoy. There's other versions of Medrash about Moshe throwing in uh, the Shem HaMufurash, the divine name, uh, or the smell of the Yosef, that Moshe smells the body of Yosef. Here's the Yosef, also the description of the burial, another point of the connection between the Aron Shal Yosef, which Aron, there's a there's one common word for Aron in, Eng- in Hebrew, in Hebrew, but in English it can mean two things. It can mean a coffin or an ark. V'am Yisrael alu ha'aron v'ashchinah v'akonim v'alvim v'chol Yisrael v'shiva ananei ha'kavod. Who goes up with Joseph? Who goes up with Yosef? The Aron ha'brit. The shchinah. That's how Yosef goes up. This is in contradiction to his father who goes up with what? With the Egyptians' entourage. The Aron of Yosef is going with the Aron of God. And people who saw this said, what are, these, what are these two Aronot? The Hemomimlam and the people carrying them say, This is the Aron of a dead person. And this is the Aron of God. From Wimlam, That's in Congress. What? Okay, there's honor for the dead, but, but together it's bizarre. For Mimlam, but the knowing people answer him. This one applied and was Mekayim and, and, and kept the mitzvot that are written in this Aaron. In this Aaron it says, I am your God. And Yosef recognized God. And Yosef was insistent on fearing his God. We won't go into it. The Medrash goes, the other Aserat had Debrot, Gilarot, and Potiphar, etc., etc., Kibudav, and Yaakov. won't go into all those details. It's on your sheet. So on the surface, Yaakov and Yosef's burial seem to be the same. But there are divergences. There are differences. Both are to Eretz Yisrael. 
a place where the body rots, and a place of Kiyusha, not the Valley of Kings. The Egyptian entourage does not enter Eretz Israel for Yaakov, and of course, Yosef's entourage is totally Jewish, not only totally Jewish, with what? With the Aron Abrit. With Adayana Kavod, with Kohanim Ulvim, and with the apex of Kiyusha, what is it going to sit in the Beit HaMikdash in the Kodesh Kodeshim, the Aron Brit. And Yosef is going not only with him in a physical, in a placement set. As the Medjur says, there is a connection to, between the two. There is a vital connection. The Aron Brit and Yosef are both inspirations to the Jewish people. What is the purpose of burial in the, in our, in the two, among the two cultures? According in the Egyptian culture, it's to preserve the physical body and the flesh. And that is why, if we don't preserve the body and the flesh, chas on the trip, on the boat, across the river Styx, he might break. And if it's not, not done properly, he hasn't ordered the correct ticket, the servant on the boat will refuse the entry. There's a physical need for the body to get to the world to come. What is the point of burial of Yaakov and Yosef? The burial is to serve as an inspiration for generations. It is, in a sense, more important than our own Brit. Yosef is to prove observance of the law. It is a live testimony that even someone in Egyptian's court with the pressures and the political pressures and the knife stabbings of the third and fourth people behind the Mishnah Melech, waiting for him to slip up, waiting to accuse him as a traitor. Even then, Yosef says, even though he does Hanita, he still says, Et Elohim Ani Yareh. He is Mekayim Masha Katuv And I'd like to point out another interesting thing, which is obvious, which is, here the Abar Benel, let's read and I'll explain what I have to say about it. Ma'at, ma'at, even after embalming, the the flesh and the skin melts and disintegrates. Until just the bones are left. Yosef is, is nechnat. It's as he took the bones. Because the, the flesh is already gone. So Barbanel is basically asking, well, if there's chanita, why are you talking about Atzmat Yosef. Well, I think the point is something else. It's true. It's, this suggestion of Abinel, the question is there, or the implied question is good. His answer is wrong. He interpreted it factually. The Chanitalik lasts for a while. After a while, it disintegrates. Just ain't so. We found mummies after thousands of years, and they looked very well. Certainly not after hundreds. Why they at Smot Yosef? Why bones? Okay. 
I think what it means, the Torah sees it that somehow. And the Torah doesn't give importance to the embalming. We do not We do not fear the decomposition of the flesh. And that is why, because we don't care. That is not the point of our burial. That is not the point of holding up our burying our ancestors and holding them. What is the point of burying the ancestors? We respect the dead and we look for them for inspiration. In Yaakov and Yosef, we want to inspire the living that Eretz Yisrael is their ultimate destiny. Despite adopting Egyptian practices like the embalming, all those are sort of externally, external exhibitions. What counts in the end? When, he, when Moshe Rabbeinu goes into the Valley of Kings, what does he smell? He smells the guts of Yosef. He smells the guts of Yosef, and how does it smell? Like the Aron Habrit. He can tell Yosef. Is there any more, anything more elemental, basic, than the smell emanating from the, from the gut? Perhaps it's, and that is the Medrash. I, I've tried to been around Tamidei Chachamim. I've never detected some kind of unique smell. But I think that's what the Medrash is saying. There's something about Sadiqim, something about their aura that we cannot necessarily put their, we put their finger on. Sadiqim b'motam nikreim chayim because of their influence on, the, on us. Why do Yaakov and Yosef command to be buried in Eretz Israel? Here I think there's two main, main things. The tradition in the Masara, we talked about, uh, Sarah, in Sarah's involvement in Yosef, and also, no less important, not only looking back, not only be, be, being buried in Ma'arat HaMachpelah, Asher Kana Avraham, which the Pasuk mentions, not only are looking back at the tradition in the Masara of Avraham, but also looking forward to the destiny of redemption. And here, I found another Medrashim, well, I won't get into that, but even though the Medrashim attributed, why, why doesn't Yosef ask to be buried immediately in Canaan? Perhaps it is that is the point. To prove to Bnei Israel that they will be redeemed. As slaves, they have a different future. And this commandment and this Masorah from father to son that we must redeem and take out Joseph's coffin and bones from wherever they lie. From the bottom of the Nile, a symbol of Egypt, not only a symbol of Egypt's power, but the source of Egyptian economic dominance in the Mideast or the Valley of Kings, which is a showing in the pyramids in the West, which show the Egyptian engineering finesse and their great wealth to all countries that dare them. A country that can go to the moon, a a country that can build sphinxes and pyramids of that size for their kings is not to be trivialized. But they know that even though Yosef is buried there, 
and perhaps the Egyptians see him as an Egyptian king. We know that he has sworn to us and he has sworn to us that his ultimate destiny is in Eretz Israel. Yaakov is to tie the Jews to their past. This is a tradition in the Masorah. Yosef is to show the slaves their future, the destiny and the goal, the redemption and their future in Eretz Israel, not only in a political sense, but also in a spiritual sense, to keep Masha Katuv Bezeh, just like Yosef, in the difficult situation that he was, in the court of Egypt, surrounded by hostile elements, people suspecting him, he still said, And he shows that their goal, their destiny and their goal is to come to Eretz Israel as free men. Well, free men from other men, but slaves to their God. In Galut, everyone, or most Galut, Jews have had this dialectic, being suspected of being different. In many places, or in most Galut, in most exiles, they adopted to one extent or another the external practices, the language, the clothes, and even sometimes the religion of, of surrounding cultures. The challenge is always to retain their internal compass. The solution, and how can Jews do this? The point is to look back and to look forward. To look back at the example of of Yosef and to look look back at the example of Yaakov, which demands to be buried in Eretz Yisrael. Purchased to be accompanied to that place just with the Jewish entourage and to leave the Egyptians, as it were, outside of Eretz Israel. These are two pictures. I have I have a little bit of time extra, so I just like to. Um, one second, let me just. So let's just go for. Let me just go over for another. Another short idea which sort of stands by itself, but is what I also was got from Herodotus. In the right is a picture of Herodotus, on the left are their mummies. Just another problem which I think is solved and sort of shows this approach, and I think it's an interesting approach to look at historical documents and to see the Psukim in a certain different light. We have this other parsha which is very interesting. Let's read it inside. When you see the Jews, when you see the Jews giving birth, and you see on the birthstones, if he's a son, kill him. But if it's a female, you let you can let it live. And the birth wives fear God. And they refuse the direct commandment of Pharaoh. And they keep all the children alive. And then at the end, Pharaoh attacks them. They sort of 
excuse themselves. Does Paro accept the excuse? At the end he says, And then Paro commands all his people, not just the Chayot, not just the midwives. Kol haben hayilod, all the sons that are born, hayi'aritashlichu, shall be cast into the Nile. Bechol habat techayon. And that remains as the previous tzivoy. As we see, this, there's some differences between the original commandment and this last one. In the original commandment, the commandment, the command person changes. In the beginning, it's the midwives. And then it gets changed to the entire population. Why? Here, what I would like to suggest now, the midwives apparently were too merciful. People who are midwives, they get connected to their babies, and they love them. It's, it's, it, it, and we sort of think of Egyptians as villains. The truth is, people that are 100% villains don't really exist. Even slave, uh, you can imagine uh, in the deep south, they were sl- slave owners and they whipped their slaves, but they didn't, they didn't kill the babies. Killing babies is very harsh. And midwives to kill the babies? It's, it's, it seems hard. We know from our from modern history that uh, it did happen, but that was really an outlier. And in most history, most of the villains are not, you know, sort of can't bring themselves to do something bad. So then he moves up. That's understandable. For midwives to everyone. You know, everyone, you just have to find one person around, a neighbor, someone you got to fight with. Someone that's just nasty, a sadist. There should be one sadist in every neighborhood. But there's another difference, which is a little bit odd, which seems to be difficult. The first command is just kill. The second command is very specific. Cast them in the Nile. Now, while most of the people live in the proximity of the Nile Delta, not everyone did. Why... Why not just kill them? It's a baby. It's not really difficult to kill. Why cast them into the Nile? Why not just give a general commandment? Kill if someone feels like thrown into the Nile. Let them thrown into Nile if they want to do other things to kill the baby, like the mialda, like the midwives are supposed to do. Let them do that. Let's look at Herodotus. If anyone, either an Egyptian of a far or a foreigner, sorry is found drowned in the river. If he drowns in the river, or killed by a crocodile, there's the strongest obligation upon the people of the nearest town to have, have the body embalmed. Now, also, part of Herodotus was the, I mentioned about 70 days. That was for kings. There were different levels. But the 70-day embalming, that was first class. There was also tourist class, and baggage. And poor people got the baggage, and that was a Quickie embalming. Here it's different. If you get drowned in the Nile or eaten by crocodiles, you get a first-class ticket. And it's the strongest obligation for everyone to have the body embalmed in the most elaborate manner for, for kings, which guarantees the trip to the world to come and buried in a consecrated burial place. No one is allowed to touch it except the priests of the Nile. 
not even relatives or friends. The priests alone prepared for burial with their own hands, as opposed to Rofim, which I was thinking, this is a special burial, and place it in the tomb as if it was more sacred than the body of a man. Okay, I, I dabbled in economics and it sort of jumped out at me. Why? What is this passage doing? Why do they believe this? It seems to me obvious that there's, I don't know, unfortunately, some kind of economic basis. People had to work in the Nile, and there were accidents, irrigation ditches, ditches that got stuffed up. There was fishing that had to be done, and crocodiles. Um, one time my father was offered a, a job in Florida and the person wanted to entice him and he says, the alligators h- hardly bother them at all. <laughs> well, in the Nile, you know, it happens. If you're working in the Nile, fishing, you know, sometimes the fish aren't enough for the cro- crocodiles. So, they had, so in order to encourage the workers, their deaths were glorified. I mean, we see this every day in many warrior cultures where people are called to sacrifice or endanger their lives. In the, unfortunately, in the Hamas now, and now we have other Mishugayim Muslims that do it also, the promise of a world to come if you're killed is great. They didn't, they didn't initiate that idea. It was also in the Vikings going to Valhalla, if you died a warrior's death. It's a, I don't know, the oldest trick in the book, but it's a pretty old trick. So now, if we go back to our problems in Pshutosh al do we have a different kind of an outlook? Well, this is my suggestion. I mean, Pharaoh saw that normal people, midwives, are reluctant to kill babies, even if they're willing to beat slaves to get the best work out of them. You know, killing babies is... Is, is, is a different kind of a thing. Dying in the Nile, though, people probably wanted to avoid it, but if you did, you got your ka, you got your great embalming, you got the sacred, that your body was sa- more sacred, you got the priests dealing with you, not everyone else, you got the whole town having, being obligated to treat you to this Great send-off off the, across the river Styx. So I think that this was made to make the infanticide more palatable. He saw people weren't eager to smash babies' heads on rocks. So he told them, listen, throw them into the Nile, it's not so bad. They get, they get, a, they get a ticket to, the, to, to cross the, the Styx. This will, this will preserve their car. And we also have to understand these things work in ancient societies. We are sort of modern and hard to believe we could get anyone to do this, but we see in certain societies, more religious societies, it works. In Egypt, I think this would work, especially for someone else, to justify what they're doing is not so bad. If we look at another mitzvah, which is in the Torah, we also see something really interesting. Kohanim cannot, Kohanim can be tamay for anything. They can te- touch in the Veilot. There is, they can go in a bait minuga. There is no isur, there's no pro- prohibitions 
for Kohanim to be Tameh. They can't do the Avodah, the sacrifices, the rituals in the Beit HaMikdash when they're Tameh. But there's no blanket prohibition from them becoming Tameh. Only to bodies. Except for their relatives. Wow. Doesn't that sound exactly opposite, exactly inverse from the Nile priests? Someone who dies in the Nile is not buried by their relatives, is buried by the Kohanim. Wow. That sounds reverse. So what I like, so I think the lessons from Herodotus and the impact on the Mikra are too. First of all, the switch that Paro makes from the original mitzvah in the Nile was, was basically to dilute moral objections to inf- inf- infanticide. To make it more palatable to the people. So they would think they would command this. So they would fulfill this vile, aggressive commandment. Both expanding the number of people involved, taking it out of the responsibility of the midwives moving it to a larger subset of people who probably were less invested in babies, or at least some of them might be, and moving the death from some generalized violent death to a death, to a consecrated death, to a lovely death, to a peaceful death, to a death that guaranteed crossing the river Styx. This is a fragment of the histories from that we found from Herodotus. So I'd just like to go do a quick review of what we talked about. So basically, we we came out we came out with pieces of Herodotus and trying to make sense of the history and the techniques of embalming to explain. The focus is, of course, the first part to explain two particular difficult uh, two uh, enigmatic two, two enigmatic chapters in, in the end in Breshit about the Exodus. First of all, the embalming of, of Yaakov and Yosef, although there is a minority of opinion that it was improper, the embalming of Yaakov. Yosef is embalmed, and also Rabbanan object to that. But the problem sort of remains on its, remains in its full, full difficulties. How did Yosef and Yaakov adopt an Egyptian practice? And actually we see Egyptian practice in one sense invading their activities, the embalming itself of Yaakov and Yosef, the way Yaakov was buried, smell of Egyptian practice. What I wanted to say was actually that there was a slightly different, and there are subtle but significant differences, which lead us to believe that the whole purpose and the process the basic goal of the burial of Yaakov and Yosef was for an opposite goal of Mitzrayim. And although due to their temporal circumstances 
of Yosef in Egypt and his position, he had to act a certain way and estrange the brothers and be cruel to them. And other practices, such as embalming in the way of burial, had to be adopted from, Egypt, from Egyptian culture. Being, that being said, there were certain significant differences and important, uh, and basically the most important thing is the goal of the embalming and the goal of burial. That the goal of burial and the goal of metim are not to preserve the physical flesh for crossing the river Styx, but rather to serve as an, not an education, but an inspiration. And that is twofold. And that's why Yosef and Yaakov work his bookends to the Jewish exiles. Yaakov serves in the beginning of the period to try and connect connect the people in Egypt, the Jews at that time, to Eretz Israel. Yosef serves as the end part in order to uh, as the end point, in order to give hope and a destiny to the slaves that their future is redemption and being slaves not to their Egyptian forebearers but to God. In the end, as a little aside, I threw out this other solution to this enigmatic issue in Pshutosh Mikra about why, what about Kohanim, what was about uh, uh, two things about why Pharaoh changed from Chayot to Kol Ha'ab, and why does he change from Bebitem of Naim to killing him, killing them on the birthbed to drowning in the, in the Nile, and that I brought from Herodotus. Are there any, we have two minutes for questions. Any questions? Avram and Yitzchak are uh, well, it's not it's not specified, but they're they're buried in Marat Hamachpelah. No Chanita is mentioned uh, mentioned them at all. Yes. Uh, that, that's interesting. I think I, I guess we have to say that that's some kind of a midrashic license. Oh, for, no, after Harsinai. After Harsinai, so after Har, right. So talking about, I guess, from the transport from Harsinai to Eretz Israel. No, no, no. They take the Aron of Yosef. David asks, well, how do they get the Aron Brit with the Aron of Yosef? I guess it's because uh, I guess we're talking about the transport from after Harsinai from Harsinai to Israel that they then they have the Aron of Rit. Thank you. Very good. Oh, thank you very much.